first of all, welcome to everybody uh, to Gaia House for the weekend. I uh, hope you have a, a good weekend. <coughs> Obviously, the subject of what we're looking at over this weekend is impermanence and uncertainty. Um, I think this is not just any old topic in Buddhist thought and practice. It is the topic, really. It's the one that is at the heart of the Buddha's message on how to live in permanence. In many ways, if we really got what impermanence was, that would be the content of being awakened, actually being able to live it, rather than just think about it and get upset about it and do all the sorts of things that we end up doing. As really a corollary to impermanence, of course, is always this sense of uncertainty that runs through our lives. Uh, an uncertainty about whether things will remain the same. <laughs> um, and I'm sure we've all had it proven to us in our lives that things don't remain the same. They actually change quite rapidly sometimes. Everything that you think is fixed isn't. Nothing is nailed down. Uh, nothing is going to remain the same. And of course, the big one um, allied to this whole area is how we deal, in fact, with, of course, our own impermanence. Um, with our mortality and with our deaths. This was such an important, I say topic, it makes it sound like just a topic, doesn't it, yeah, for discussion. Well, you know, impermanence, discuss. You know, it's not like that at all. It's right, as I say, right at the centre of the Buddha. thought it was so important um, that his final recorded words, as they're recorded in the Pali Canon, um, goes something like this. this is a paraphrase, but it's pretty well what he says. He says, all compounded things are impermanent. Try and strive on diligently. You know, this is what he's saying to you. To live with that full knowledge, that full recognition of the impermanent nature of all things. Uh, and the way, of course, the vicissitudes of life, if we allow them to, uh, will impinge on us and create one big problem. And that big problem is, again, the very heart of the Buddha's teaching, that problem of dukkha. For those who are not familiar with that word, this is the word that's usually translated as suffering. Uh, it means much, much, much more than that, um, but it'll do just as a start, and I'll gloss on it as we go through this evening. If you like, at the heart of, or at the very centre of much of what we would say is our dissatisfaction with life, our uh, problems that we have, is, or even suffering actually, is impermanence. The fact, as I've said so far, that things don't remain the same and they will not remain the same. Uh, the German language poet Wilke had a wonderful phrase for it. He said, we're in this world forever taking leave. Uh, which I think is a wonderful phrase, because it really, you know, he said, we, we're basically placed in this world and a bit like steam from a bowl, we're just evaporating. That's how we are, uh, and the things around us. It's how we live that. It's the core, really, of the teaching, how we see that, how we see that nothing that is compounded, and by that simply the Buddha means that which is composed out of causes and conditions, yeah, this is a world, the Buddhist world, in which nothing arises out of nothing. Everything arises out of a cause. So if the cause changes, then the effect changes. Yeah, 
and all compounded phenomena are impermanent because they're composed of causes. They depend on causes for their existence. If they change, then the phenomena changes. Now, just at the very beginning of this talk this evening, I just want to just flag up there's two ways of approaching this whole notion of impermanence. And one, I think often is the immediate reaction is it's scary that everything, really, if you start to take this on board, it becomes quite a scary phenomena. Um, that nothing, in a sense, can be depended on um, for our certainties. And the Western world, in particular, has been obsessed with the search for certainties. Um, throughout its philosophies, throughout its religious traditions, it has been obsessed with trying to nail down certainties. The whole of Western philosophy is based on that search for something which is absolutely certain that can be depended on. The Buddha had no such certainties. In fact, the only certainty was uncertainty about everything. And so it comes to how we can live that uncertainty. Now, I talked about the scary side of that, how this can be seen as extremely scary, um, how nothing is certain, how nothing is going to remain permanent. On the other hand, it's tremendously liberating. You know, when one realizes all the machinations that you engage in throughout life to try and hold down things, to try and hold down the structures of your life, to pin down things, to create certainties, to create permanence. Just think of the tremendous amount of energy and time uh, that goes into trying to do this in our daily lives, of actually trying to hold down things when they are actually changing. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that things like human relationships and that are unimportant. It just means that we have to learn to accommodate within our, for example, just our relationships, the changes that are going on. And in a sense, the lives of two people, in some ways, coming together is a process of negotiated change. It's not a process of two people remaining the same forever. Um, this seems to me totally unrealistic. And so the Buddha is presenting a realistic picture, trying to get us to see the realism behind what is. So that's what we'll be examining. Now, you've heard me just use a phrase here, what is. The whole of this tradition, I don't know, I mean, there's a lot of new faces, some faces I recognize here this weekend, so I don't know how much some of you know or how little some of you know. But in many ways, the whole of the Buddha's message is about learning to live with the way things really are. There's a phrase in Pali and Sanskrit which actually translates as that. Learning to live with the way things really are. Not, and this is really important, not the way that you would like them to be. Yeah. But the way they actually are. The way the phenomena comes to it. Now, again, because we're searching often for certainties and, and control within our lives, we look for a way things ought to be for us. More often than not, we can never control the way things come to us. And even if we do, it's like a very, very fragile structure that we're holding on to, which falls apart. Yeah, and particularly the more desperately you try to cling to the way we would like things, the more likely it is to fall apart. Inevitably, it is going to fall apart. Inevitably, it is going to change. 
Now, just pause a second and, and take that in, that everything, absolutely everything is changing. Now, the Buddha wasn't the first to think this. Other thinkers around the time of the Buddha, in a completely different culture, in ancient <coughs> Greece, for example, were speaking in the same way. There's a very great, you know, famous Greek philosopher who's basically preserved in a few fragments called Heraclitus, who's actually saying the same thing. He's saying, for example, there's a little aphorism which says you never step into the same river twice. It does not remain the same. Actually, one of his students came up and said you never step into the same river once. (laughs) Because it's flowing. Now, the Buddha himself was trying to get across to us, trying to make us see, to try and create that awareness in us that this changes all around. From the most magnificent structures, the most natural edifices, down to the most ancient of human structures, they're all continuing to change. At different rates and at different speeds. The Himalayas, the great mountains in the north of India, continue to rise. The monuments continue to decay, no matter how hard we strive to preserve them. One of the most painful but the most obvious forms of change that we encounter is often when we look in the mirror, (laughs) when we look at that each day, when we see friends around us growing old, sometimes dying, the pets that we have who, you know, throughout many years that we have them, they will die. So it is written, if you like, into the contract of life, yet in our psychological need for certainty. And this is where the Buddha really comes in, in terms of looking at our psychological need for this. We are creating unrealistic structures, structures, in fact, as which I say, as I've said before, will drop apart, will fall apart. So again, it becomes a question, can we live this? Because, and I've said this so many times in this room over the years I've been teaching here, that to grasp the idea of impermanence isn't difficult. It doesn't take a great intellect, it doesn't take a great brain to actually grasp the idea that things are changing. How far down we go into looking at things that are changing often depends obviously on ourselves. But in terms of, if you like, the intellectual content, it doesn't take a great intellect to discern the notion of change. Now, as all of you know, Buddhism is a practical system. The Buddha Dharma is a way of approaching life in a practical way. The Buddha was not a philosopher or an intellectual. He was a very practical man. Um, And I think, really, that practicality of his teaching is encompassed in this. Because although it doesn't take a great brain to discern impermanence around us, it takes a lot of effort to live it. It takes a great deal of insight, awareness, openness, um, ability to see it around us and not to be grasping after something which is a changing phenomenon. Now, we don't have to talk about the great tragedies of life. We don't have to talk about all the things you know, that, that really do upset us and perhaps cause us suffering and pain in life. Um, to see that we simply don't get the truth of impermanence. 
Because if we really grasp the truth of impermanence, why would we get upset when the car didn't work? Why would we get upset, for example, if we lose something, mislay something, have it stolen? The pen that goes missing, the pen that won't write. Now, I'm talking about the big things of life here, but the real little things that irritate us day in, day out. The things that don't go quite right in our ordinary life. They don't remain the same, in other words. Of course, there's those very irritating creatures around us called other people (laughs) Um, who don't remain the same. Have you noticed this? Um, Much usually to our annoyance that they don't remain the same, their tastes don't remain the same, their likes, their simple likes and dislikes don't remain the same, and it upsets us. There is a kind of primary narcissism uh, that wants everything to remain like us. You know, something narcissistic that wants the other to be like us. You know, because at least the only thing we know we have control over, so we think, is ourselves. But one of the things we cannot control, of course, is the external phenomena. I cannot control the other. I cannot control most of the world events, for example, around me. These are simply beyond my control. And the Buddha really is setting down a question, a challenge to us, which is, given that, given so much of life which is beyond our control, for example, even the things that happen to us in terms of our sicknesses, we have no control of them. We we pick up a flu bug or whatever it is and we feel really wretched. We don't have any control over that. But how do we deal with it when it happens? Um, do we exacerbate the problem, make it greater, make it bigger, blow it up out of all proportion, by focusing in it on a mind which resists and a mind which rejects? Rejects, for example, the changes that going, you know, your body is going through or the changes which are occurring around you. So within this challenge that the Buddha is setting us in many ways is the idea is the, the challenge to somehow live this a little bit more lightly, to live impermanence with a lighter touch than the one we do at the moment, or the one we bring to experience at the moment, which is often about resistance, which is often about this complete rejection of the what is going on. So it's about seeing clearly. It's about seeing clearly and then somehow, and this is what we'll be exploring over the weekend, learning to live in accordance with what is there rather than rejecting it. I came across a lovely little aphorism. Unfortunately, it's not mine. I wish it was because I'd love to have marketed it, which was, relax, nothing is under control. (laughs) It's a lovely phrase, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> you know, we get so tense um, a lot of the tension of life a lot of what we bring to our day to day life experiences is the tension of not having total control you know, over things you know, relax, nothing is under control <laughs> you know, from the small to the big often to the big events of the world to the little things in your ordinary life 
Now, I just want to spend a few moments, again, for those who are not familiar with this, but also really to familiarise, again, to, to re-familiarise people who perhaps do know about this, that this problem that the Buddha speaks about, of which impermanence is a major one, is a problem of what he calls dukkha. Now, this is one of these words, unfortunately, I really, in, in terms of the West, I would really like to naturalise to get into our languages, particularly in circles like this and Guy House and other places. It's the word that's usually translated as suffering. Um, it's a word which means far, far more than that. Um, and it really is in this vast spectrum of understanding that sums up a lot of our condition. The word dukkha really, I suppose, if I was going to give you a phrase which encapsulated it in English, is the totality of your unsatisfactoriness. It's from the minor, minor irritations in your life to the big tragedies. So if you want to see it, it's much more of a spectrum word, the word dukkha. It encompasses many meanings you know, from those, as I say, minor irritations to these big, big things that happen in our life. In my early days <coughs> studying in India, I was very fortunate to I've spent some time with one of the Dalai Lama's tutors, um, because I, my initial training was in Tibetan tradition. <coughs> and this particular teacher, Ling Rinpoche, said to me once, he said, um, said everybody tends to think of dukkha, this word, uh, as a bit like something really sharp, a bit like being stabbed or something really painful. He said it's not like that at all. Just imagine this, slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. <sighs> yeah, that's more the image doesn't start off very painful. doesn't start off that painful. You do it for a long period of time and it becomes extremely painful. And from the Buddhist perspective, we do it over the course of our lifetime, continuously. Yeah. We do it again and again and again. Um, we have obsessive compulsive disorders. <laughs> we have the compulsion to repeat and the compulsion to repeat often gives rise to the same problems again and again and again. And at the heart of this, at the very centre, as I've said, at part of this, there is the dukkha of impermanence. There is the dukkha of trying to attach oneself to something that is permanent. And in many ways, this meditative exploration that's involved in it is really aimed at trying to get you to see that there is really ultimately nothing to grasp after. There is no permanent structures there that one can attach oneself to with hopeful certainty. Yeah. This is exemplified particularly in the language of Buddhism, which obviously arising out of an Indian tradition had Sanskrit as its base, and Pali was one of the languages which was used to basically record the Buddha's teaching. Now, many, many, many of the words which are used, and we don't get this in the English translations, and this is why I'm saying this, many of the words used are actually verbs. Most of the words are actually used verbs. In fact, Buddhism speaks in verbs. It doesn't speak in terms of nouns. Because the moment we have a noun... We attach ourselves to it as being something permanent. Whereas all these verbs are activities. Even nibbana, nirvana, 
depends on which way you like it, Pali or Sanskrit, it doesn't matter. Even this big one, which is the, if you like, the awakened state, the state of nirvana, is not a place, it's not a thing. It's a way of being. So they talk about, for example, in the early texts, of nirvanaing in this life. Nibbanaing in this life. So the Buddha teaches from a state of nibbanaing. So it's indicating, of course, that this is process rather than actually places to go to. Nirvana, as I've often joked about it here, is not a Buddhist heaven. (laughs) It's a way of being in this world which understands the truth of impermanence. But this is not an understanding which I hope you've picked up on already, which is simply about intellect, which is often... Uh, the same, for example, when we deal with many of the seemingly distressing situations in our life. We take them on board intellectually and in a way we dismiss them because we think we've understood them. And one of the big ones that is going to happen to all of us, of course, is death. Yeah. And of course, I've often heard these phrases, I'm sure many other people must have said, of course one knows one is going to die. Most just the distancing. <laughs> there. One. That means everyone but not me. <laughs> yeah. It's that feeling that we have that we don't really, really accept it. That we don't really accept the truth of our own impermanence, our own mortality. So we distance ourselves from it. And this is true of much of you know, the talk and around impermanence is that we're distancing ourselves constantly we're not accepting it, we're not taking it on board virtually every culture that you look at historically has always looked back to a golden age it goes back and says oh there was a time when everything was much better it was much more settled probably if you went back there they were saying the same thing about some other era so the change has been constant it's a flow, a flux and this is one of the things that's emphasized throughout Buddhist thought, throughout the traditions. This is not the, you know, the preserve of any one tradition. In fact, I would even say it's not even Buddhist. You know, that there is the truth of impermanence. Is that Buddhism? It's either the way things are or it isn't. Yeah. It just so happens that the Buddhist traditions are the one, of course, that keeps stressing it. That's all. But the truth itself... If it is a truth, and only you can discern this for yourselves, is not Buddhist. It's just the way things are. And there's something important in what I've just said, because this is not about, you know, impermanence as a belief. I now have dropped this belief, and I now believe in impermanence. It's not as simple as that. It's actually about making this movement into really beginning to investigate. To investigate in a way your subtle graspings. Your subtle graspings after some degree of permanence, no matter how far down you might place it in your experience. So we're investigating that, examining it. And one of the main things that the Buddha is stressing, if you really, really begin to investigate it, then you will see that everything we're investigating is compounded. And all I mean by that is it depends on causes and conditions. 
and causes and conditions come together in a certain way and they will dissolve in a certain way when the conditions change. In many ways, that this is the, in, in, at the centre of the, the Buddhist message, if one wants to call it that anyway, because this transition, this movement from our distressed, painful state of living and much of life is experienced. I know, don't want to paint a bleak picture, but a lot of life is experienced like that. And even our joys often become painful because we're aware that they're going to change. And what do we do? We desperately try to hang on to them. So we try to hang on to the things which are pleasant and joyful and that in our life. And in, in a way, we create further misery and distress out of that, in that clinging process. And on the other hand, you're trying to keep at bay all of the unpleasant things um, that are out there seemingly to get you. So our life is spent in avoidance and grasping. Much of our life, not all, but much of it is spent in that avoidance and grasping. And the movement that I'm speaking about, this movement from the unawakened distress state, wherein that is the characterization of it, this characterization of, of avoidance and grasping, this movement is a movement towards understanding and real insight into the what is going on in terms of seeing that if you change conditions... In a sense, everything changes. Now, let me just take this slowly, because this is very important in terms of, in a sense, the investigation. Because it's investigation, investigating the causes and conditions initially for our distress. That's why the ennobling truths, which are usually translated as the noble truths, the ennobling truth that the Buddha teaches starts off with the truth of dukkha, the truth of suffering, the truth of distress, pain, unsatisfactoriness. But then it says, of course, that it doesn't arise out of nothing, it arises out of a cause. And that cause is basically craving and grasping, desire and grasping after something. Yeah. In that, in that very identification of the problem, and the cause to the problem, in a sense, there is a beginning to see what we can do. Now, for example, if dukkha, suffering, distress, unsatisfactoriness, were an intrinsic, unchanging part of the human condition, then we could do nothing about it. If it was just there. In other words, if it didn't have causes and conditions for it being there, then we could do nothing about it, and we might as well, well go home. But that's not what the Buddha is saying. He's saying that this very problem that we have, which is at the centre of our lives, and impermanence is part of that, because we make unsatisfactoriness, we make distress out of impermanence for ourselves, that that can be changed. That we can begin to approach life in a different way. And that really is the movement from the unawakened state, which in a sense is not seeing clearly into the truth of the way things are, and is projecting a reality to that clear seeing, that clear knowing, 
that the Buddha so often speaks about in the texts. There's a phrase in Pali which is Yonasa Manasakara, which is actually to bring wise attention to that which deserves wise attention. Not to seek for permanence in what is actually permanent. Impermanent, I should say. So we're not looking for something which isn't there. We're not projecting it. We're not looking, for example, again, just extending it a little bit. We're not looking for something to produce happiness which can never give it. And we often, and again this has been part of the obsession of the Western world, particularly throughout its history, we often try to look for happiness in permanent structures. That is why the Western tradition and its religious and philosophical systems have given rise to the idea that in a way happiness was elsewhere other than here. So they placed it on a metaphysical realm, which you could call heaven, or the Greeks called it the realm of the forms, or whatever. But they placed it elsewhere, certainly removed from here, where we are, in our day-to-day lives. So the search became for somewhere else. Everything that we did in this life became for the service of something else. And at the heart, at the very centre of the early teachings, as far as we can understand it, that the Buddha gives us is that the meaning of life was to be sought sought here, now. To move with engagement and to live with the things the way they really are without projecting onto them something they can never deliver in this life. Now, I don't know whether it's occurred to you that when the Buddha talks about the eradication of dukkha, when he talks about the eradication of unsatisfactoriness and the eradication of distress distress and despair and things like this, he is not saying you are not going to have pain. He is not going to say that things around you and people perhaps you're close to are not going to die. So what really he is forefronting, and this is what I think is so germane to the message in the 21st century that he has to give, is a psychological approach. Because he's really saying that it's a a difference of the way that we approach things psychologically. That is at the very heart of whether something is dukkha or not. So pain per se, which is something we're all going to, you know, Experience. You know, if I shut my finger in the door, which I've done on a number of occasions, I will feel pain. You know, that is just the way that we're wired. There is no doubt about that. But whether it becomes dukkha depends on this, depends on my mind. So the very fact of having pain itself is not necessarily dukkha. For most of us it will be, because it kicks in immediately. You know, why has this happened to me? Why have I done this stupid thing? Or whatever. You know, you kind of give yourself these hard times of, you know, what's happened to you. You amplify it, magnify it, put it under the burning glass of the mind. It's a bit like, you know, sometimes when you've had toothache, I don't know if you've ever had this, I've certainly had it in the past again, once when I was in India, awfully. Um, where you get a toothache and you can concentrate on nothing else, you know, other than the toothache. It takes over your whole consciousness. You probe it with your tongue. You keep sticking it into the cavity and thing. It just makes it worse. (laughs) 
Actually, this is a very, very good metaphor for much of what goes on in ordinary life. We place it under the burning glass of the mind and we keep probing it, keep pushing at it. And therefore, it becomes painful. It becomes distressing. So, if you like, pain, simple physical aspect of pain, becomes yet even more painful when there's a certain quality of mind which is brought to this. Now, in the Pali Suttas, there's a, there's a lovely little sutta, which suttas, for those who don't know, are discourses of the Buddha. And in this particular discourse, which often have little stories attached to them, it's said that the Buddha was walking along a road and for certain reasons, um, he was walking barefoot, which often was the case in ancient India, he was walking barefoot and he trod on a sliver of stone which penetrated his foot. And the text says something like this. Again, it's a paraphrase, but it's pretty accurate. It says the stone splinter, the sliver of stone, caused him immense pain, but no dukkha. So it's indicating something that can happen for us, that we can experience pain, the pain perhaps of impermanence, and not experience it in this way that is worked over by the mind, which makes distress, if you like, even more distressing. So much of our lives is given over to concentrating and, and giving ourselves a hard time. Focusing the mind in a particular way, which is usually one of resistance. Projection and resistance. Projecting it in one way, wanting it to be this way, and finding out it's not. And therefore resisting it. And when we do that, as you can see, I want the world, let's put it in very bold fashion, you know, I want the world to be a particular way, and I project that onto the world, and of course it keeps giving me the complete opposite to it. As you can see, that's a wonderful scenario for pain. Now, it doesn't have to be physical pain. I'm talking about psychological pain. Here. You know, the, the pain of our emotions. The pain of not getting what we wanted. But even sometimes, you know, paraphrasing Oscar Wilde, the pain of getting what we wanted. <laughs> yeah. Because that's what happens as well. You know, we're going to be dissatisfied in both conditions. <laughs> You, know, you get what you want, that causes me pain, because it's not quite right. <laughs> and then I don't get what I want. So both end up as being painful situations. So with that mind that we bring to our experience, then we can never find satisfaction in life. As you've heard me say, so much of what is going on for us, so much of life is completely outside of our control. Yet, and again, I think this perhaps is something 20th century, 21st century, that we have in the West is this idea almost of omnipotence, being able to control our lives, being able to control others around us. Um, you've heard that expression, herding cats. You know, well, trying to actually get other people to do what you want 
is like herding cats. It just does not happen. Um, so we perhaps attempt to control our lives, and that control is basically is based on the fear of impermanence, the fear of change, the fear of what might happen. So here's another word to add into the equation just for this, this evening, in the sense of the diagnosis, fear that arises. Fear in Buddhist psychology is always linked to aversion, what we don't want to happen. Some vast part of our life is perhaps spent being fearful of things that will never happen. You know, at all. There's a lovely phrase in, in a 6th century poem by somebody called Shantideva, which um, the Dalai Lama was actually very fond of quoting, which is, if you can do something about it, why worry? If you can't do anything about it, why worry? <laughs> yeah, because, in a sense, <clears throat> we spend a lot of our time <clears throat> engaging in fears and worries about things which we can't do anything about anyway and never could do anything about. And often, just projecting it a little further, projecting into things which will never, ever happen in our lives. So fear, again, is, is part of this component. Fear of the change around us. Particularly, as I've indicated a little earlier on in this talk, the fear of the other around you changing. It's so sad, and again, I've often joked about this, but it's so sad, isn't it? It's where perhaps a couple have been living together for a long, long period of time, sometimes a whole lifetime, almost, and one of them one day says, you've changed. <laughs> Seems so ridiculous. Um, it's as if the person has been freeze-framed at a period in time, and until the actual frame that you've got in your mind just really doesn't relate to what's there at all, yeah. But, but then, with that difference between the two, you actually begin to see the change. But of course, change has always been there. It's always been part of what's going on. And so even relationships themselves, when there is permanence and fixity and the attempt to create permanent structures, are in a sense almost condemned to failure. Yeah. And I mean that quite seriously, that so much of the breakups that you see are about the non-acceptance of change or the non-ability to negotiate the changes that occur. Now, that's not to say every change is negotiable anyway. But if there is an unrealism built into the heart of, say, for example, as in, in this case I'm giving, of a relationship where I want you to be like this forever, I'm forever, yeah. then um, you condemn, you're almost doomed to failure right from the very outset, right from the very beginning. Plus, you might add into the equation as well something like this expectation that the other will make you happy. You know, there's a death knell of a relationship if ever there was one. You know, make me happy. Now, out of the various elements and components I've given you, we will explore some of these further as we go through. And what can we do about them? Because this is not just to kind of give you, you know, sort of pessimistic nightmares about the human condition. It's the fact that we can actually do something about it. That we can change, if you like, the causes and conditions 
that give rise to the suffering, I'm going to use that very strongly, the suffering of impermanence, to the acceptance of impermanence. In other words, the movement away from the distress caused by the changes with others and world events and things around you into an acceptance of that. Now that change, as you probably gathered, can only take place in one area, and that is the mind. It's a reorientation. Um, the Buddhist tradition, right from its very inception, the Buddha makes no bones about this at all, has been about one thing and one thing only, which I think is why it continues to speak to us over this vast gulf of time, nearly two and a half thousand years, which is it's about the transformation of the mind. That is the only thing that we have any control over. Might not seem it when you close your eyes and try to meditate. Um, when you try to look at what's going on, it might seem it's completely outside of control. But after a while, with familiarization, with the ability to reorient the way that you hold aspects of what is going on in the mind, there is change that occurs, and it's a mind transformation. And that, throughout the history of Buddhism, the Buddhist tradition, pretty well across the board, all of these cultures it's moved into, from China and Japan to Korea to Cambodia to Tibet, all of these cultures that it's moved into, all of them have had at the forefront of what they're engaging is, in, is the transformation of mind. And not to say they all have the same techniques, not all the same ways of approaching, but that is really what is at the very centre of what is going on, is that attempt to change the mind. Because that is the only thing which will help us to deal with you know, Hamlet's sins and arrows of outrageous fortune. You know, the things which are happen in, happening to us of which we have very little or no control over at all. And so this becomes a program of radical acceptance. It becomes a program of radical relaxation. And I know that's a much abused, banded around term, and you often hear about meditation for relaxation and all this sort of stuff. Well, it's a spin-off. But actually what it's really more about is relaxing into life. There is a deep, deep tension. Almost going back to where we started. There is a deep, deep tension in our lives when we resist and reject impermanence. When we learn to relax, we're relaxing fully into change. In fact, there's a very great Zen teacher called Dogen, 12th century, who basically says that living impermanence is awakening. That's Buddhahood. Just that ability. Sounds simple, doesn't it? <laughs> Just to be able to live. In other words, what you're doing, if you like, the state that is being aimed at the so-called Buddhahood, and it sounds like a, a massive thing to attain, you know, like Sisyphus rolling his stone up the hill to get there. But what it's talking about is this is a complete way of being in this life where one is living easefully in life. Now, that's not to say that there aren't going to continue to be the horrible injustices of the world, the tragedies, the physical sufferings, and so on and so forth. The Buddhist tradition is not unrealistic, and the Buddha said, basically, that these things will continue. 
And this is not also a recipe for doing nothing about the things that we can do something about. And it might mean thinking more creatively about how we can approach doing things that we can actually have an effect on. However, it does take this onus away from us of thinking we can do everything, this omnipotence. Probably most of us have had the distressing experience, I should think, of listening and watching the news and feeling really anxious by the end of it. Because so much that you're bombarded with as things that you cannot do anything about. And so, in a strange sort of way, it becomes entertainment to make you anxious. (laughs) And that is all it becomes. Now, a lot of those things, as I said, and the Buddha says, we can do nothing about. (coughs) What we can do is something about this mind that approaches those. So when we talk about living easefully, we're talking about the mind being at ease. The mind itself not being distressed. So in other words, dukkha is what we bring to our experience mentally. It's not intrinsic to our experience. However, because and again, I'm going to use a Buddhist term here, and I'll explain it for those who are not so familiar with it, is we live in what is called, in Buddhist terms, sangsara. Um, some of you might know, even in the West, we've made a perfume out of it, called sangsara. <laughs> sangsara is this term which indicates the condition that we find ourselves in. The literal meaning of the word in Sanskrit and Pali means to go round in circles. Does that have any kind of resonance with any of you? <laughs> you know, that's a condition that we find ourselves in, going around in circles. Um, often finding ourselves a bit like the mouse trapped on the treadmill. You know, doing exactly the same thing and getting nowhere in doing it. However, the sansara, and it's again a verb in these languages, <coughs> is meant to indicate a way of being. So it's sansara-ing. This is the way that we find ourselves. And it has a feeling tone, and that feeling tone is dukkha. So, let me put this in much plainer English for those who are not following this. What this means is, is we have the compulsion, as I said earlier on, to keep repeating. And if you ever think you're experiencing deja vu, you probably are. In other words, you're experiencing something you've done before, or something similar, and it's having similar effects. And the feeling tone to much of that, because again we keep repeating, is that it is distressing. It's unsatisfactory. It's not quite what you want. Because when we're sangsaring, we're bringing a particular mental process or a set of mental processes to bear on our experience, and we keep doing it again and again and again and again. And and this is nothing to kind of beat ourselves up with or feel guilty about. It's what we know. That's all we know. So to our experiences, the Buddha says, we bring again and again and again in samsara in condition, we bring craving, greed, desire, or aversion, hatred, ill will, and delusion to it. It's a pretty unholy trinity, isn't it? if you think about it. 
if what, that's what we're doing a lot, well, mostly to our experience. Not entirely, because again, there would be no hope if that was the case. Now, there are opposites to that. And it's developing of those qualities, the opposite qualities to, let's just take the traditional formulation of this, greed, hatred, and delusion. By the development of the opposite qualities, the qualities of, instead of greed, generosity. And that's not just about money. Not, not at all. It's about our way of being in the world. Can we exist in a more generous way of being in the world? with all that that might imply. Can we exist in the world without ill will, without aversion, without hatred? Because if that is the case, then we're perhaps being in a more kindly way, a much more compassionate way, in our day-to-day -day existence. And if we're doing those two things, then perhaps we've started to move beyond delusion and move into an understanding of the way things really are. And part of the way things really are, of course, is impermanence. And to really move into those three opposites, into understanding, into kindness, and into generosity, means taking on board fully the impermanent nature of all that is around us. I might add, it's no easy task. Um, the Buddha never said it was going to be easy. Um, but, and I can only speak very personally here, I think this is the most worthwhile thing one can ever engage in. The most exciting thing that one can ever engage in. In this movement, this transformation of the mind, which simply keeps imprinting our experiences with the same old things. And it's a really good experiment if you've never tried it. I'm sure probably some of you have. But just to look at the way things keep arising. If somebody is there in front of you who you find difficult at work or you know, at home or whatever, and just watch the way the mind keeps repeating. Irritation, irritation, irritation. Annoyance, annoyance, annoyance. Or whatever it might be that's coming up again and again and again. To observe it. To watch its, in a sense, boring nature. <sighs> like it keeps happening again and again and again the way that we keep resisting certain things, the amount of energy that's required in resisting life rather than relaxing into it. I'll just say one final thing, and then we'll, I'll open it just for a few minutes to see if there's any comments or questions. It don't have to be questions, it can be comments. But one of the things that we invest a tremendous amount of time and energy in is this resistance rather than this relaxation into life. And that's what it's about, as you've heard me say, relaxing into life. Now, it's an accident, I think, of the way languages are constructed, and particularly English, that often, I don't know if this has struck you at all, but often you see written in books that you know, Buddhism is against attachment. So therefore, one must become detached. You know, you've got the antonym, you know, the opposite to attachment is detachment. In a way, this is quite misleading, you know, because I feel that the word de being detached indicates almost like standing on the outside of life rather than being fully engaged with it. And this, is, this notion of detachment is not what, what the Buddha was talking about. What he was talking about was being fully engaged with life. 
So interestingly enough, the opposite of attachment is correct engagement. And that is what we're talking about. So it's the correct engagement with what is happening in our day-to-day lives. All of us can be detached. We can all step outside. You know, the desire to escape anything. You know, that's detachment. You know, there's a phrase in one of James Joyce's stories where he says this particular character is an outsider at life's feast, you know, standing on the outside looking at it. And that's what, not what the Buddha intended at all. It was to make that movement into the heart of life and to be fully present, to be fully there, but not to be suffering dukkha in that, to be living easefully in the heart of the most difficult. So one of the great Tibetan saints, Milarepa, says to, ha- to be happy is to be happy no matter what happens. No matter what occurs. Now, for most of us, happiness is conditional. You've got to have exactly the right conditions. You've got to have the optimum conditions, and then I'll be happy. And only then. Has life ever provided you yet with the optimal conditions for it? And even if it has, how long have they lasted? One second? Two seconds? An hour? Two minutes? Because they don't remain the same. They change. So, life is never going to present us with those optimal conditions. And if that is the case, then we have to learn to find a way, a gentle way, not a hard way, not a way, as I say, of beating ourselves up and brutalizing ourselves or others around us, but a way of beginning to learn to relax and let go to let go of the unnecessary and to pay wise attention to that which is necessary. And that is really at the heart of what this practice is about. Okay, I think I've probably said enough for tonight, probably too much, um, given that you're probably, some of you, quite tired from your journeying. Um, But I'll just leave it open for a few minutes to see if there are any comments or questions. You will get a chance as we go through the weekend... Um, to ask more questions. I will always make opportunities because this is the way that we investigate. In a way, you don't really learn that much from just hearing me talk. It's through the investigation that you will learn.